0: All right, you ready for the word this morning? All right, well, here we go. Uh, As you know, we're in a series. We're looking at uh, people in the Bible who spoke with God, prayers uh, at key points that made a difference, that moved the hand of God, right? And today, uh, the last couple of weeks, I mean, we looked at Elijah and his prayer life. Last week, we looked at the powerful prayer of repentance, uh, Psalm 51. This week, we're going to switch gears again and look at a guy Uh, whose name is Habakkuk. We're going to look at his prayer life. Now, Habakkuk is a short book that's tucked away near the end of the New Testament. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know it's there, haven't even uh, either read it or heard a message from it. How many of you have never um, heard a message on Habakkuk? Several of you? That's really sad because I preached one a couple years ago. (laughs) You know how they always say to the pastors, really happy if by Monday morning the people remember anything he said. That's why it's important, by the way, to respond to God, whatever he's doing in your life, right then, because you'll remember the response you made to God, the response of faith you made to God after hearing the word of God, right? But sometimes you may not remember what the preacher said, but you remember what the Holy Spirit did in your life. Amen. All right. Great. Well, that's not in my notes. That's just extra. That's a bonus for you this morning. All right. So... Uh, all right. And now last time we preached on it though, we were focusing more on the idea of like, um, dealing with when bad things happen to godly people and that type of thing. This time we're going to have a little bit of a different focus uh, on that. Instead, we're going to be looking at how to talk to God when he's not doing maybe what you think he should do. Or maybe he's doing something you think he shouldn't do, or you'd rather not have him do, right? And so dealing with that, when you really don't understand, it doesn't really kind of make sense what what God is doing, and and you're struggling through those kinds of things. So let me give you just a little background on Habakkuk and his book so we can understand it more deeply. Now, we don't really know much about Habakkuk. He's not in any of the other histories in the Bible, so we only know what we see in this book. But we do know that his name is derived from a Hebrew word that means to embrace, or to cling. And this is really appropriate because we're going to see Habakkuk embracing his faith in God in the midst of some really difficult struggles and trials that he's having a difficult time understanding, right? And so um, now based on the details of the book, we believe that it's written during the last years of the kingdom of Judah before the Babylonian empire came and destroyed Jerusalem and deported everybody, right? And so we think maybe the last four kings, Josiah, and then the last um, three kings. He was probably alive during the reign of Josiah, the last good king of Judah. Now, J- Josiah was this godly king. He reigned in Judah from 640 BC to about 609 BC. And his reign was characterized by great spiritual and national revival. In 2 Kings 23, it describes him this way it says, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. He removed all the high places, got rid of all the idolatry and the spiritists and the mediums and on all of those types of things and taught people the word of God. So there's this great revival. But then something tragic happens. While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, he marches out, he's going to the Euphrates River with his army to help the king of Assyria fight the Babylonians. And at the time, the Israelites, they really didn't like the Assyrians at all. They were Because the Assyrians were ruthless, they had caused the Israelites all kinds of problems uh, for a number of decades. And so it may have seemed prudent for Josiah to go out and try to hinder Pharaoh Necho from going and helping the Assyrians. So Josiah marched out with all his armies, and, but Necho defeated Josiah and killed him at Megiddo. And I can tell you, the first time I was reading this through, I mean, I'd never heard this story before, and I was reading it through, I was absolutely shocked. I was like, oh no, this is the first godly king, and after how many wicked, wicked kings, and and all of a sudden this happens, I was shocked. Why would God let him die? Why would God let him make such a foolish decision? Why wouldn't God stop this from happening? You know, and if it teaches us anything, it teaches us that, you know,. Just because you're a godly person doesn't mean life doesn't happen to you. Amen? I mean, there may be times God protects you and God uh, takes care of you and, and those types of things. You have all sorts of blessings. But that doesn't mean that bad stuff will never happen to you, right? So we need to get rid of this idea. It's real easy to get this idea that if everything's going great, that means God loves me and his blessings on me. But if I'm facing some difficulties, well, then that means God's abandoned me or something like that. We really need to get rid of that idea, because it's not true. And so Josiah dies tragically, and things changed really quickly after that. I mean, the last four kings of Israel reigned from 609 to 587 B.C. Three of them, they're Josiah's sons, and one is his grandson. And they were all evil, every last one of them. They turned away from God. They turned away from the law. They turned back to idolatry and to sin and worship false gods. And there was increasing violence and increasing strife and conflict in the land. You know, in all of this, again, the first time I read this was very shocking to me. How could they turn back to idols so quickly after God had so blessed them? And Josiah's death, it was so sudden. And, uh, uh, but think about it. If it had such a profound effect on me as I was reading it, what must have been the, the effect on the, our prophet Habakkuk as he was living it? I mean, he experienced the revivals under Josiah. He experienced the shock of Josiah's sudden death. He witnessed the very sudden decline in spirituality and, uh, nationally. And he would, he would have known experientially the difference between a very godly society, one that was going after God and serving God, and an idolatrous society that was careening towards disaster. You know, how many of you can remember a time in our culture when our culture was much more godly than it is now, right? And you know what? When I was young, I remember some of the older people and older pastors saying, you know what? Some time ago, our our society then was much more godly than it was then, right? I think any honest look at our recent history will show that a, a steady decline in godliness, in spirituality, over a bunch of decades in our society. And that's what Habakkuk is looking at when he begins his prayer, all right? So just a couple more broad observations, then we'll look at the prayer, all right? First, I want you to notice this about the whole book. He doesn't address the Israelites at all. Now, that's different. Normally, all the prophets, they get God's message, and they speak for God to the Israelites. They bring rebuke. Uh, they rebuke them for their sins. They prophesy God's judgments. They look forward to a day of restoration, maybe look forward to the day of the coming of the Messiah, right? And then they both confront and they comfort God's people with these words from God. But Habakkuk, he doesn't address Israel at all or anyone else. The only one he addresses in this book is God himself. And then second, notice this. Habakkuk is struggling. He's struggling to come to grips with what he's seeing in the world. He's struggling with what God is not doing about it and what, what God is going to do about it. You know what that tells me? Sometimes, sometimes our greatest struggles are with God. I mean, we do struggle with stuff of the world, right? We struggle against sin and against temptation. We struggle with the challenges that we face, but sometimes we struggle with God and what he's doing and what he's not doing. Habakkuk is struggling And in his struggle, he shows us how to relate to God when we go through these kinds of struggles and we don't understand what he's doing. So let's look at Habakkuk's powerful prayer. Look at verses 1, beginning at uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. And he says this. He says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look? at injustice. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Alright, so let's unpack this complaint a little bit and see what we can uh, learn for it. What's bothering him so much as he cries out to God like this? so why, Why is he bothered so much? Well, he sees Increasing violence in the streets, increasing strife and conflict everywhere. Justice doesn't seem to prevail, right? Instead, it's perverted. And the idea is that this justice is applied unequally, right? Certain people get justice while others do not. Justice is twisted to mean whatever those in power want it to mean. And the laws ignored. The word of God has been marginalized or ignored in society and, and no longer influences people's hearts and minds and its leaders. And then look at the phrase, the wicked Hem in the righteous. And the idea is that the ungodly were actively working to reduce and undercut the influence of the righteous in their culture. I mean, think in terms of how an army might surround another army that they perceive as a threat. They surround them, they cut off their means of supply and communication in order to neutralize the threat. And so the idea here is that the wicked see the righteous as a potential threat to their agenda and goals. And so Habakkuk says they are actively trying to hand them in, to to neutralize them, to cut off their ability to influence the culture, to make sure they don't have a platform from which they can influence society. And so here's the picture. Judah is a post-godly, or we might say a post-Mosaic society. In the not-too-distant past, They had been influenced and ruled by and informed by the Word of God. And they had been a society that experienced spiritual awakening under King Josiah. And the result was justice and peace and righteousness and prosperity. Now, I mean, they still had some of the outward trappings of all of that. The temple worship still continued. The priests continued their work. They were outward symbols of religiosity. But God's law had largely departed from the hearts of the people. It had been rejected by the people and their priests and their leaders. And the result was increasing violence, the ascent of the wicked to power, increasing strife and conflict. Say, does that sound like anything? Does it sound familiar at all to you? I mean, we live in what some and many may call, have called a post-Christian society. And it's at very least a post-biblical society. Not that long ago... Our society was much more informed by the principles of the Word of God. And you know what? We keep a lot of the trappings of outward religiosity. But the Word of God's been marginalized and ignored and often maligned as right now. And even right now, we're witnessing an attempt to hem in or reduce the reach and influence of those who stand for biblical morals. And what have been the results? More injustice, more violence, Increasing strife, increasing conflict, and more and more people occupying places of influence who hate God's word and who call evil good and good evil. You know, we might have the same complaints as Habakkuk had. And so look at his complaints here a little bit more closely. First he says, How long, O Lord, how long must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out violence, but you do not save. So here not only has Habakkuk been seeing all this but he says he's been praying about it he's how long must i cry out for help i mean this isn't the first time he's talking to god about it he's been appealing to god for justice for a while and it seems to him like god isn't doing anything about it and he's wondering you know where is god why doesn't god do something to set this thing straight right i mean do you sometimes feel that way Like you're calling for a while and it seems like God isn't doing anything yet. And so you pray and you pray for righteousness to be exalted and for renewal and for revival. But it seems like the ungodly just march on unfettered and unhindered. And uh, and then he says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? It's as if he's asking God, you know, why do you make me see all this stuff, God? If you're not going to do anything about it. He's growing weary and tired in his day of watching this march in his society towards increasing violence and wickedness and idolatry due to the forsaking of God's word and his covenant that was established with them. And you know, he knows what the problem is. They've forsaken the covenant. And he knows what the solution is. They need to get back to their covenant relationship with God. <clears throat> and so he feels harassed and helpless and hopeless. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes. You pray, you seek God, you mourn over the condition... Of our country. You quote 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves and pray. But it seems like things sometimes just keep getting worse. Like Habakkuk, we might also cry out, God, how long? How long, God? This is Habakkuk's first complaint. But let's move on. We're going to look at what we call God's first response. God responds to Habakkuk. Verse 5 He says, This look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And so God here responds to Habakkuk. And he tells him to watch and pay attention. God's going to do something in his days. Leave him utterly amazed. And God says it's something that is so shocking he wouldn't even believe it. And so this response, it shows us a few things about God. Before we even get to what God said he's going to do, it shows us a few things about God. First, God isn't ignorant of evil. He sees it. He knows what's going on. It's not hidden from him. And then second, God isn't indifferent to evil. You know, sometimes it can seem that way. It's when, when God, you know, is patient or, or God's merciful. While well, It can seem like maybe he's indifferent, but he's not indifferent. He's not unconcerned about what's going on. I mean, that's what Habakkuk's prayer was all about, right? I mean, God, all this evil is going on, and you aren't doing anything about it, right? And, and Habakkuk, by the way, he's not the only one. You can see people in Scripture praying prayers like this. Like Psalm 10, the psalmist says in verse 1, Why, Lord, do you stand fire off? Why do you hide yourself? in times of trouble. And then he goes on to list all these things that the wicked seem to be getting away with. But this response from God to Habakkuk indicates that he's not indifferent. He's not unconcerned. He cares about what's going on. And then thirdly, it tells us that God will respond to evil in his time and in his way. He's going to do something about it. He's not going to let it go on forever. You know, sometimes there's a delay. In God's judgment or God's correction. Sometimes there's the delay. He doesn't punish sin immediately. Why? Well, the answer is in God's patience and love and grace. Peter says, you know, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God just wipe out all evil? Well, I mean, if you read the end of the book, you see that one day he will. That's going to happen. But he's giving space now for repentance because he loves all people and wants everyone to have a chance to experience his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and newness of life that comes through Jesus. And this means that sometimes we have to deal with the fact that while mercy and grace are being expressed, sometimes evil gets to do its thing at the same time as well. God will respond to evil in his time, in his way. And so then in verses 6 to 11, God tells Habakkuk exactly what he plans to do about all this stuff that he's been complaining about. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people, and they are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to the they, they all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sin. They mock kings and scoff rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Aren't you encouraged? I mean, put yourself there. If you were Habakkuk, how would you feel right about then? I mean, the Babylonian Empire was rampaging through the Middle East at that time. They were conquering everything in sight. And God tells Habakkuk that he is bringing them to Judah. Judah will be conquered as well. Now, notice how God describes these Babylonians. They're, they're ruthless and impetuous, they're feared and dreaded, their armies are powerful. He says they're godless, they worship their own strength. And and this then leads us to what we call Habakkuk's second complaint. And you'll notice some differences in these two complaints, right? The first time, he's complaining that God's not doing anything. Now the second time, he's going to be complaining about what God is going to do. The first time he's complaining, he's upset with what the Israelites are doing. Now he's unsure if what God is going to do is the right thing. So going on in verse 12, he says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. And so right out at the outset of this second complaint, Habakkuk does something that's, that's really, really important. You need to notice this, right? Mark this down. He acknowledges God's eternal nature. And in doing so, he kind of acknowledges that there may be some things that he doesn't see or understand because of his own finite nature. I mean, when we talk to God about stuff that that we're struggling about, we need to acknowledge this as well. God, you're eternal, God, and I'm not. God, you may be able to see some things That I can't see. How many of you have ever gone through something, some difficulty? You didn't understand why you were going through it. But sometime later, after God gave you some better perspective, you could see, you know, God's plan and what he was doing, right? And the goodness of God's plan all along. Sometimes he has a, all the time he has a better perspective. Sometimes there are some things that we just don't see. So God, you're eternal. Then he goes on, he says, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish? And so Habakkuk here is shocked. It's like he's saying, whoa, 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 God, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's not be hasty here, God. Can we just talk about this for a minute? I mean, he can't believe God is going to use the Babylonians as an instrument to chastise Israel. I mean, they were their worst enemies. Going on, he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then? Do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He said, God, you know, I I know I was complaining about the Israelites and about how you don't seem to be doing anything, but God, the Babylonians are worse. I mean, they're completely godless. They're not, not a shred of anything decent or godly among them. How can you use them as an instrument to deal with the evil in Israel while seemingly just ignoring what they're like. And then he goes on to describe for God what these Babylonian people are like. He says, you know, you've made people like fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them up with hooks and he catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And, and so he rejoices in his glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choices of food. What he's doing is he's describing the situation to God in more detail. Like, God didn't know that. Have you ever done that before? Come on, you know you all have, right? You got the situation, and you just described it in more detail. You want to make sure God knows every little thing about the situation, right? As if God didn't already know. And you know what? I think that's okay. Habakkuk does it. Some of the psalmists do that. It's okay to do that, you know, even realizing there's nothing you can tell God that he doesn't already know, right? So, but we want to, you know, feel like, okay, we, we laid it all out before God, right? god knows and then he stops there and he asks god a question verse 17 he says is he to keep on emptying his net destroying nations without mercy he's saying god are you just going to leave them unpunished just let them just keep on on doing this god is this fair god is this even right god I mean, Habakkuk's really struggling with this, really struggling with what he sees unfolding in his day. But then, right at the end of his second complaint, he says something that's really, really, really important. Mark this down. It's profound, and it's powerful. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what to answer when I am rebuked. Some translations say reproved, or reprimanded, or corrected. He expects God to put him in his place. He expects God to correct him. He knows that God has more insight than he has, more perspective. And this here is a really remarkable expression of faith. It's a statement that says, you know, God is right in everything he does. Even if I don't understand it and I don't know what's going on, God is right in everything he does. And I need to understand more. But there's even more here as well. And it's this. He doesn't run away. He doesn't say, well, you know, if if that's the case, then then I'm I'm just out. How many of you have ever seen people who then go through a struggle... And um, in the middle of it, they can't understand that. And say, well, if this is what the Christian life is, then, then hey, I'm out of that. Right? Habakkuk doesn't do that. He doesn't run away. Instead of running from the situation, he runs to God. It's where Habakkuk lives out his namesake and embraces God in the middle of a huge struggle. Watch this short video.
1: Something's coming. I can feel it. Something's always coming, I guess. Some kind of storm rolling in. Always threatening. This looks like another big one. My dad always said, a man's gotta be ready for anything. You do the work. You hunker down. You take care of what's yours. A man don't run when the storm's coming. That's what he said. You be strong. You be the mountain. You don't move. (sighs) He was a mountain, all right. Then he was gone. Sometimes mountains fall. The storm hits. The waters come up fast. Mountains can crumble and slide right off into the sea. I've seen it happen. I'm no mountain. And I'm not standing out here on my own, Dad. I found something stronger. God is my refuge I don't run away but I do run to him he shows up every time he helps when it gets bad maybe this storm will miss us maybe not let it come whatever it is I'm not afraid anymore I'm not even going to try to handle it on my own I've seen what God can do he is the storm sometimes. He's all the strength I need. He's the real mountain. I won't move as long as I'm with him. So I'm sticking with him, Dad. He is God.
0: You know, there are going to be times when when we face stuff that we just don't understand. Can I encourage you right in the middle of that when you're at the worst part of that time run to God embrace God with everything that you have because the Bible says what? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or trial or persecution or famine or sword or nakedness or anything else like that? Shall it be able to separate you from the love of God? He says, no, in all of these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Run to God. Embrace God. Every prayer of struggle should have something like this in it. Every prayer of complaint, if you will, should have something like this in it. You know, if you look at many of the psalms or of lament or psalms of complaint, you see something like this in all of them. Like Psalm 10, for example, he begins um, by uh, talking, asking God what he's not doing. And then he talks to God about all the awful things that are happening and people are doing to righteous people. Then he ends with a statement of faith in God. And it's really important in all this because without this attitude, The complaint just leaves you in despair and depression. And that's not really healthy for you emotionally or spiritually. And it's it's really not where God wants to leave you. And so in the middle of your biggest struggles, bring it to God. Lay it out before him. Be brutally honest, but don't stop there. Then embrace God. Hold on to him. And so then God, after this, he responds to Habakkuk a second time. That's it's a little long. We won't go through all of it, but let me just highlight a couple of verses for you. Verses 2 and 3, he says, The Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Don't linger. Wait for it. It'll certainly come and not delay. And so God's saying, You know what? There's going to be a time for Babylon, right? There times coming, and they're not just going to go on forever and ever and ever, right? But he widens his view as well, and uh, he's going to speak of a people belonging to another time, he calls an appointed time at the end, right? And he he says that, though it appears to linger, wait for it. Then in verses 4 to 12, um, he describes this judgment on Babylon that's coming, right? And it reads almost like this criminal verdict. Like, you did this, and so this is going to happen to you. You did thus, and so this is going to happen to you. They can't escape God's judgment forever. Verse 13, there's a pivot. God widens his view talks about the peoples and the nations. And then in verse 14, he says this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How many of you have heard that verse before? Right? A lot of you. That's a really famous verse. It's one that's often quoted out of context. And it's a great verse even out of context, right? But it's in the middle of all of this stuff, all of these complaints. And it's a hopeful verse. A messianic verse. This is, this is where we're headed. This is what the scripture is driving towards. From Genesis all the way through the patriarchs, through Moses, and through the Old Testament, all the way to Jesus' death and resurrection, to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the church age. So when Jesus comes back again and sets up his kingdom Ultimately, that's what we're driving towards, that day in Revelation when it says, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language stand before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping and praising God. It's like he's saying to Habakkuk, you know, don't forget, this life isn't all there is. You know, we're headed towards something better, something eternal that will last forever and forever. Amen. When you're in the middle of the struggle, you need to remind yourself of that. And then we come to chapter 3. This is Habakkuk's response to all of this. And this time it's not a complaint. It's not Habakkuk's third complaint. Instead, it's a poem or a song of praise that's intended to be sung. It's different, right? He brought his complaints, heard God's response, he's responded by embracing God, and now he's worshiping. And again, we won't go through every verse here, but a couple highlights. Verse 2, he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. Some translations say repeat or revive them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy, God. And so he's about to praise God. And as he's about to do that, he brings this prayer request first. God, I know you've got to do what you've got to do. But God, at the same time, he's saying, I know your heart. I know you're full of mercy and grace, God. So while you're doing all that, would you renew your works in our day as well? God, make them known. Remember mercy. You know, this has been probably one of my biggest prayers throughout the last year. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world and in our country. And it looks like to me like God's really trying to get people's attention, right? He really wants people to come to him and experience his grace and love and, and mercy. You know, I've been praying that, God, whatever you're doing in the midst of all that and what you need to accomplish, God, God, remember mercy. God, renew your works in our day. God, renew your works of healing and grace and, and, and mercy and, and the things that you do, God. I hope that, that you're there with me. I hope that as we've been going through this uh, series on praying prayers that make a difference, that God's been touching your heart and that you've really been praying some prayers that make a difference. You know, not just I lay me down to sleep and God, thank you for my meat and those types of things like that. But praying, digging in with God and praying prayers that make a difference. God, renew your works in our day. As a matter of fact, we're going to close in just a second. Would you stand with me for a second? Would you just agree agree with me in prayer? I'm just feeling the Holy Spirit uh, right now to pray for a couple people. Um, Some of you may know Ralph had a stroke this past week. And uh, so we want to pray for him. And also, we want to pray for Jerry back there as he's been battling cancer for a year or two. And also Zoe as well. Can you help me do that? Can you just raise your hands right now and begin to pray for those three? Come on, just pray right now. Don't even wait for me here. God, amen. God, you said your house would be a house of prayer. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, we are stopping right now, our agenda, just to go with your agenda and the leading of your spirit here, God. And God, as you see, it's our heart that you would renew your works in our day, God. God, that's our heart, God. Renew your works in our day, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, God. And uh, God, you see uh, Ralph right now, God, in Jesus' name. God, we pray for him as he's had this stroke, God. But we pray your healing for him. God, we pray and believe for healing for him in the name of Jesus, that you'd restore to him, God, everything, God, that you'd enable him to make a complete recovery to the glory of the Lord Jesus, God. God, we pray for Paul Heise's mother who had a stroke and is back home, God. In the name of Jesus, God. God, we're praying for strength and healing for her, God. We pray. God, we pray for Jerry, God, as he's been battling cancer for a couple of years now. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke that cancer, God. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke that cancer, God, and we proclaim uh, health and goodness and blessings for Jerry, God. In the name of Jesus, God, so be it. And God, we pray for Zoe, God, as uh, she had this sudden uh, um, diagnosis of cancer, God, and uh, they tell her it's terminal. But God, God, it's all in your hands. God, you're the one who says, what's the end and what's the beginning, God? And so we pray for her in the name of Jesus, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray for healing. Bring glory to Jesus, God, through her we pray, God. And I pray even others, God, who are in this place who have a need right now, God. In Jesus' name, God, bring healing, bring a touch, God. In Jesus' name, touch and be with your people, God. God, uh, remember mercy, renew your works in our day, we pray, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, so be it. Give God a little praise, if you would. Hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen, amen. Renew your works in our day, God. Amen. You may be seated for just another moment. Amen. Oh, man. And can I encourage you to, you know, if God does something in your life, and uh, you know, you come for prayer or something like that, and God does something. Come and tell us, I and mean, tell us right away. There are times, you know, um, people have prayed for something, and then, like eight months later, they come by. Oh, by the way, did you know I had that, you know, prayer? And I'm like, that's awesome. I'm like, tell us right away. You know, so, amen. Praise God. So, verses three to fifteen here then uh, uh, is is the psalm of praise that that Habakkuk gives, and uh, it looks like many of the other psalms in in, in the book of Psalms and Verse 16, he stops for a minute, pauses to reminisce about his experience. He says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay kept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Right? He knows he needs patience. He knows he needs faith. And sometimes faith requires patience, right? Several times in the book of Revelation, it says things like, this situation is going to happen. Then it says, this requires patient endurance on the part of God's saints. And we get this patience from the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 17 to 19, he closes with what might be one of the greatest statements of faith in the Bible. He says, though the fig tree does not blossom, does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Amen, amen. How can he do that? I mean, that makes no earthly sense, right? How can he rejoice when all this bad and difficult stuff's going on? The answer is in the last verse, verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. You don't do all that in your own strength, right? And all of you know, you can look inside yourself and know... You don't do all that in your own strength. You do that in the strength of the Lord. You do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. The psalmist said it this way, Whom have I in heaven but you on earth? I have nothing to desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He enables me to tread on the heights. And so here's the process that Habakkuk went through this powerful prayer of embracing God in the struggles. First, he was sighing. Then he was seeing. Then he was singing. He was sighing, bringing his complaints to God. Then he was seeing as he looked to hear from God and looked at what God was going to say. Looked to God's word. And then he was singing as he embraced God in the struggle. Was able to rejoice in what God was doing in the struggle and able to face the struggle in the strength of God. Would you all bow with me in prayer now? As we're closing this service. Oh dear heavenly Father, thank you so much for the prayer of Habakkuk. God, I pray for all of us as we face the difficulties and troubles in our world. Help us like Habakkuk to turn to you, God, to embrace you in the midst of all of that. And God, I pray especially for anyone who's facing particular difficult and troublesome circumstances right now. God, encourage them. God, I pray you'd lift them up, that you'd enable them. God, that you'd strengthen and help them move past the sighing and the seeing to the singing as well. Be with your people, God. Renew your works in our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. And anyone, if you need special prayer uh, for anything that you're facing right now, um, I'll be down here in the front. I'm going to stay a while, and we can pray together and believe God together. Amen. God bless you. Have a great, awesome week walking in the strength of the Lord. Amen.